0: tonight, 1 Samuel chapter 25, and as it is good to be back on Wednesday night, uh, back in our Bible study, in our series on 1 Samuel. Uh, while you're turning, let me just, uh, one quick uh, thing, uh, I have been having problems with this eye today, and with my contact, uh, so if you think while I'm preaching that I'm looking at you, and I'm winking at you uh <laughs> It is not intentional, okay? Uh, so, just want to clear that out. Why is the pastor winking at my wife? It's, I promise it's not intentional. Uh, it's just this is bothering me. Uh, but and if I have to do this tonight while I'm while I'm speaking, uh, you'll know why. But uh, just wanted to clear that up first thing, right out the gate. First things first, uh, priorities. So, as we jump back in our series, we have about six weeks left uh, before we close out this book of the Bible. And we will have uh, completed First Samuel. Uh, but I want to give a quick recap before we jump in. You've got your hand out there. Uh, there are three rulers, and the name of our series is A Tale of Three Rulers. There are three rulers mentioned uh, in this book. Uh, Samuel is the first one that we see in the first uh, six or seven chapters. And then we see Saul, and we know who Saul is, and we see David. Remember, Samuel was the spiritual leader. Uh, he was the prophet who came from a very good heritage, uh, started great, advised Saul to keep his his heart pure before the Lord. Uh, He told him to stay humble when Saul, remember Saul didn't think that he was worthy to be king. Uh, He thought he was just little in his own sight. Uh, Samuel even pointed that out. Saul is the king right now, and uh, he has gone from someone who did not see himself as a good leader, good ruler, qualified to lead, and now he has a death grip on the kingdom. And he is well determined that he is not going to let anybody uh, take, the kingdom from him. Uh, He went from just thinking, man, I'm going to have a peaceable reign, and now it has become a monarchy. And he is the only one qualified uh, to lead. And David, in his mind, is a threat to the kingdom. And David is that third ruler, that third person that we'll see In the last chapter, become the king and succeed uh, Saul in the kingdom. Uh, But he's kind of in the background watching. And he's just that guy who's simply trying to follow the Lord wherever he leads. He is taking that role of the shepherd and uh, leading others, but he is. Humble, not seeking the fame. Remember, he wasn't looking for notoriety when he was uh, the one who became the giant killer. He didn't ask for those women to sing the song of praises about him in uh, town, in Jerusalem. Saul slain his thousands. But David, his tenth, he didn't ask for that. He didn't go out looking for that. He was just content to serve in the shadows, uh, being that simple servant. But when we look at all three of these rulers... We see glimpses of each of our lives. We have moments in our lives when uh, we're spiritual giants who have great impact on the lives of others, like Samuel did, uh, where we play a vital role in the spiritual development of other people's lives. We'll have selfish moments where we're like Saul, where everything revolves around us, and man, uh, we don't want it any other way. We want to be the center of attention and the spotlight. But we'll also have those moments where we're humble, and where we have been humbled, and where we're simply content with just being in the background. We go through seasons in our lives. Sometimes uh, the things that happen in our lives, circumstances, have a lot to do with that. But when we look at this, God uses these people to point to areas in us, and we're going to see that tonight. And we ask ourselves, which category are we in right now? Where am I today In the season of life and the circumstances God has brought my way, where am I and which ruler do I most identify? Because in this chapter, we see all three of these men mentioned, all three of them mentioned in 1 Samuel chapter 25. So if you're taking notes, you can write down number one, the chaperone, the chaperone. Look at verse number one. The Bible says, and Samuel died. There it is. He's done. And Samuel died. And all the Israelites were gathered together and lamented him. They mourned for him and buried him in his house at Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. This great spiritual leader, his ministry finally comes to a close. But it also signals something bigger to David. Remember, at this point, Saul is still on the run. And the only buffer, the only hope, the only encouragement that David has is Samuel. Samuel is the one who wasn't afraid to tell Saul that he was wrong. Samuel was the one who said, Saul, you're going to lose your kingdom for this decision. Samuel was the one who looked at Saul and said, that's not wise. You've done the wrong thing, Saul. And now Samuel is gone. There is no more room for error. There is no more buffer in between Saul and David, nobody is now strong enough to say, Saul, what you're doing is wrong. Everybody else is falling in line. Everybody. And so that guy is gone. At least with Samuel there, someone was speaking truth in the life of Saul. But I wonder if David felt, or I wonder how David felt knowing that he was gone. How did he feel? Think about Joash. Maybe he felt like, hey, if as long as Samuel's there, Saul might try to behave. Saul might try to do what's right. There's a story in Second Chronicles 24 and verse 2 about a king named Joash. Joash was seven years old when he became the king. Think about that. You know, you're seven year old. We have a seven year old. Could not imagine her being queen of anything. Uh, but <laughs> I could say a lot there, but I won't. Uh, but think about. A seven-year-old becomes the king. And the Bible says in 2 Chronicles chapter 24, and verse 2, that Joash did right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. There was a priest who had been tasked with the oversight of Joash while he was young. And as he grew, Joash did everything that was right as long as Jehoiada was alive. But that same chapter that has that verse mentioned tells us that Jehoiada dies and right after his death, Joash goes on a killing spree and kills all of Jehoiada's descendants. As long as Jehoiada, that buffer, was there, Joash did what was right. And that makes me wonder if we have to have somebody to hold us accountable to do right or we just do right because it's right. Does somebody have to hold you to those decisions? Or do you simply do right because it is right? Do we have to have somebody hold our feet to the fire? Samuel was the last judge over the nation of Israel. His challenge to the people is found in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23 and 24. It says, Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord and ceasingly pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart, for consider how great things He hath done for you. Hey I'm going to hold your feet to the fire, folks. I'm going to hold you accountable, but your responsibility is to follow the Lord, to follow Him. Imagine we should do a theme like that. Uh, follow Him. It sounds like somebody named the Apostle Paul in Second Timothy chapter two and verse two, when he said, and the things that thou hast heard of me among faithful witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. I'm going to invest in you, and I expect you to take that investment in and then share it with someone else. That is discipleship at its purest point. That is simply sharing the truth that has been shared with us by someone else. It is our responsibility not to be a sponge, but to be A filter. Not to be a sponge, not to soak it all in and sour on the countertop. But to be a colander, a filter. Hey, I'm letting that flow through me. A channel that goes somewhere else. Not holding it, but sharing it. And Samuel did that. Encouraged the people to do the same. And now Paul is telling Timothy, do the same. But let's make it personal. Do you have someone in your life that has invested in you? Someone who has been a spiritual chaperone to you. Someone who has invested so much in your life that, man, when they're gone, there'll be a massive hole, there'll be a massive void. Some of you know somebody like that. Maybe that person's already gone for you. And now it is your responsibility to do the same thing that someone did for you in the lives of others. It is your responsibility as a believer to invest in somebody else. That's why when we see the kids come in on Sunday morning or uh, kids go into Safe House, man, that is a weighty role to play. When we see the teens come in, that is a weighty role. When we see young people, we see people who are getting involved in serving for the very first time. That's a big deal because we are doing what the Bible says. We're investing in the lives of others. But we need to also take that mantle upon ourselves. Not just say, wow, we go to a church that does that. We need individuals that will do that. Hey, I'm going to come around. Hey, man, I don't see you that often, but I'm thankful that you're here. Well, let's go get coffee sometime. Let's go do a lunch sometime. Let's do something. Let's serve together. Something to show that I'm investing in somebody else. I hate to tell you this, but none of us are getting any younger. That's right. Yeah, Brother Jesse and I know, it. you know. Uh, but we're not getting any younger. At some point, all of us have to pass the torch. As much as we don't like to talk about it, with my dying, you know, this, this dying breath. I'm no, we all need to be passing the torch. We need to be investing in someone else. But understand, whoever you pass the torch to, they're not gonna do it like you do. Think about the fact they may do it better than you do. And that is scary. Well, Pastor, what if they do it better than I do? Great, that's awesome. You did your job well. They do it better. But sometimes that means hearing things that we really don't want to hear. Oh, man, I I might be coming to the end of my race. I might be coming to the end of my time of effectiveness. I love Proverbs 27, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. I see a couple things in that verse. The fact that you have a friend who will tell you the truth. I don't want a friend who just tells me what I want to hear. I want somebody who tells me the truth. If you go to the doctor and the doctor says, you know, you have a problem, but I really don't want to tell you what it is. That's not a good doctor. You need a new doctor. I want some, a doctor who's going to diagnose and tell me exactly what the problem is. And we need friends like that. Tell me exactly what the problem is. Tell me how I can fix it. But not just hearing those words, are we saying those words? We need friends that will tell us the truth, but we also need to be a friend that will tell us the truth, that will tell others. So we see the chaperone. Number two, we see the contempt, the contempt. When we look at this chapter between verses 1 and 2, we really don't know how its time goes by. We know that Rama is in the northern part of our region. We'll show a map in just a minute, but not yet. But we don't know how much time goes by between verse 1 and 2. What we see is that David goes to a place called the wilderness of Paran. Paran, whichever way you want to call it. But it says in verse number 2, there was a man in Mayan whose possessions were in Carmel. And the man was very great. And he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. This is a guy who has a lot of money. This is a very wealthy man. Verse 3. Now, the name of the man was Nabal, and his name, the name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and of a beautiful countenance. And the man, but the man was curlish and evil in his doings, and he was of the house of Caleb. Now, let's stop right here. Remember, we talked about the chaperone is now gone. We don't know how long this has taken place, but David has gotten out of Dodge. He has fleed, fleed, he has run, whatever. Uh, he's run away, and now he's not anywhere close to Saul. I'm going to get away, and I'm going to let some things die down, let the dust settle before I make an appearance again. But we get this backstory now that's going to be, that's gonna literally consume the rest of the chapter. We see these two people, Nabal and Abigail, this mean dirty, nasty guy, and this beautiful, very godly woman. Total opposite ends of the spectrum. But think about Nabal, this wealthy man. Nabal, even though he's wealthy, he's a piece of work. He's an evil man. The word's curlish and evil. The word Nabal means fool. Nabal. And it is the same word in Hebrew, Nabal. And that same word, Nabal, is used in Psalm 14, verse 1. We know the verse. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. That Hebrew word for fool is Nabal. So we see this man's name means fool. He is a foolish, but he is also a godless man. And he's married to a beautiful and very godly woman. Interesting is this guy doesn't follow Jehovah, but this woman apparently does. And we see that play out in the story. But it's a good reminder that she did not allow his temperament to affect her own. How many times have we allowed the people that we spend time with to affect who we are? We become chameleon Christians. You know what a chameleon does? They blend into their surroundings. We have a tendency to be chameleons at times. When we go and we spend time with these people at work, and they don't necessarily care about the things of God, and uh, we kind of slide into our shell and don't really talk about church or the Lord, our faith. But then we come to church on Sunday, and man, it's all praise Jesus. Yeah, come behold the wondrous me. Yes, we love the Lord. We're chameleons, but we need to be consistent. Rather than being one thing one day and one thing another day, we need to be the same way all days. We need to be the same. But how many times have we succumbed to the way the other people's act and their, their attitudes, their decision-making, all those things? Proverbs 15 verse 1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. Kent Hughes said this, The true test of a man's spirituality is not his ability to speak, as we are apt to think, but rather his ability to bridle his tongue. Knowing when not to speak is more important than knowing when to speak. Paul Tripp said this, winning the war of words involves choosing our words carefully. It's not just about the words we say, but also about the words we choose not to say. And this is evidenced in the next few verses of our text. David and his men are hungry and in need of support. They're in this wilderness. I know we've got a map there that we can put on the screen, but the wilderness of Paran. Paran. If you look on this map, about dead center just to the left is a place called Mahan. That is where Nabal and Abigail live. But they are in Carmel where the sheep are. They're being sheared. Carmel, just north of that. The wilderness of Paran on this map is not even listed. If you were to look on a larger, broader map, It would be down underneath the word Amalek off to the bottom left of the screen. That's how far away David and his men have resorted to getting out of Dodge. But they're going to come up to Carmel and they're going to provide secret service for Nabal's shepherds. They watch out for, and that over the next 10 verses we see kind of how that plays out. David sends his men and says, hey, we've done such a good job. I don't feel guilty about going to Nabal and saying, hey, we've taken care of some of your men. We've provided security. Shepherds were not known to be warriors. David is the lone exception. Uh, They weren't known to be great fighters. They were known to be great men who just, we watch the sheep. We chase off the dogs and the wolves from time to time. But uh, we're not great warriors. That's not what they were known for. But we have provided security, so would you... In kindness and repaying our men, would you just provide some food? We're hungry. So in this passage of Scripture, in verse number 10, it says, And Nabal answered David's servants. They say, Hey, we've provided security. Would you feed us? Now, that doesn't seem like an unreasonable ask. But look at the response, verse 10. And David, Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who's David? Now, this is not I'm asking the question because I don't know who he is. He's saying, He's not significant enough for me to respond. Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There be many servants nowadays that break away every man from his master. What was David doing? He's on the run from Saul. Whose side is Nabal taking? Saul's. Saying, hey, there's people every day that run away from their master. David's supposed to be loyal to Saul. Why isn't he? Why does he need me to feed his men? If he needed somebody to feed him, he should go ask Saul. That's what Nabal's attitude is. Verse 11, shall I then take my bread, my water, my flesh that I have killed for my shears and give it to men whom I know not whence they be? In short, I'm not giving you guys anything. And you can tell David what I said. So verse number 12, so David's young men turned their way and went again, came and told him all these things. Remember what we just said a minute ago? Sometimes it's better not to say anything because what's getting ready to happen in David's response shows that David was not just a shepherd. David was a warrior. And David responds like we would. We see the challenge that's mentioned. Number three, verse 13 through 17. David looks at all of his men. Remember, he's got 600 of them. He looks at all of his men and says, boys, get your swords. Now that doesn't sound like they're going for a peace talk. And as you see in the next few verses, David is well intended to kill everyone in Nabal's family. Every one of his servants. Everyone uses some very descriptive language of how how he's going to ensure and who is going to be left standing at the end of the day. But look at the response and the challenge. Verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail. Remember that woman who had a good countenance, who was a beautiful woman, who had good understanding? It says... Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to salute our master. And he railed on them. Verse 15. But the men were very good unto us. We were not hurt, neither missed we anything, as long as we were conversant with them when we were in the fields. Then they were a wall unto us both night and day. These guys actually stood watch all night long over our herds, over our flocks. They provided great security. Verse 17. Now therefore know and consider... What thou wilt do. For evil is determined against our master and against all his household. Can you imagine Abigail's good countenance completely changing as this guy's talking? Hey, ma'am, I know exactly what's getting ready to happen. And you need to be very aware that we're all getting ready to die. That is what's being shared. That's what's being told to Abigail. Abigail. But look at the description. This is where we're going to end this point. Look at the description that the servant gives about Nabal. Remember, we already know, fool, the fool said in his heart there's no God. He's an evil, curlish man. He's brash in everything that he does. Doesn't have good understanding. Verse 17, for he is such a son of Belial. Belial is an interchangeable word for Satan. He is such a son of Satan that a man cannot speak to him he had a history of poor judgment in the eyes of those who worked around him now comparatively let's think about our own testimony can people come and talk to us can people come and have a conversation with us are we quick to cut them off quick to brush them off quick to dismiss them hey i I don't need to hear that hey that's not right you're wrong i'm right I don't have a problem. You have a problem. I don't know where you got your information. That's what, what Nabal is. He No one can speak to him. Do we have a track record of integrity? Can people come and talk to us? Are we willing to listen? Do we have a track record where someone could feel comfortable coming and speaking to us? Or are we quick to dismiss their judgment? Now, I like what it says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Now, we know in the New Testament the word conversation is not our lips. It's not what we say. The word conversation is our manner of living. How we live our life. Only let your manner of life be as it becometh. It improves the gospel. It gives others opportunity to want to hear the gospel. So when we talk about our attitude, when someone comes to us to discuss something with us, do we leave them with the impression that, hey, I want to have a conversation the way that Jesus would? Or do they leave with, I don't ever want to talk to them about that again. Which impression do they have when speaking to us? Are we someone who's easy to talk to? I mean, we all know this. That listening and paying attention are two totally different things. Honey, are you listening? Uh, uh. Yeah, what would you say? Listening and paying attention are two totally different things. And we can fall into that trap even with Jesus followers. When we come into church and our head's on a... Swivel and we're looking for our friends to talk to, and somebody walks up to us and says, "Hey, can I talk to you for a couple of minutes?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got, I got a couple of minutes. Yeah, and we're not even zoned in. We're not dialed into that person. I saw a clip a couple of weeks ago. And it was talking about cell phones, and even when I hold my cell phone in my hand, or I put it on the table when I'm having a conversation with someone, I'm subliminally letting them know that yeah, I might be here. But if that phone rings or I get a text, that takes priority over this. We need to lean in to those conversations. Only let your manner of living, your conversation, be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Do people leave that conversation, the discussion with us, feeling like, man, they cared about what I had to say. They wanted to hear what I had to say. Or do they leave frustrated? The challenge. This lady had a choice. And we see, number four, the confidence that's mentioned. Then Abigail made haste. That was a wise decision. Made haste, verse 18. Remember, she had good understanding in verse number three. She understood what was going on, heard the servant, was dialed into the conversation, what was said, and she heard this. Evil is determined against our master and this household. There is something bad that is getting ready to happen. She understood. Maybe she had heard that David was the giant killer. Maybe she had heard that David had several hundred men at his disposal. Whatever she knew about David, she knew enough to get her mind in gear and her body in motion. Verse number 18, she made haste. Took two hundred loaves, two bottles of wine, five sheep ready dress, five measures of parched corn, hundred clusters of raisin, two hundred cakes of figs, laid them on asses. And she said unto her servants, Go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she told not her husband Nabal. And it was so, and she wrote on the ass that she came down by the covert of the hill, and said, David and his men came down against her, and she met them. Now David had said, Hey, I am gonna kill everybody there. I'm gonna kill everybody. Verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hasted line off the ass and fell before David on her face and bowed herself to the ground. You know what made the difference? You read the rest of the text. You know what made the difference? She was humble. What was the opposite reaction? Her husband. Her husband was not humble. Her husband was a jerk, and she was the polar opposite of that. And we see throughout the next few verses, That she took a peace offering. Say, Pastor, what's that have to do with me? She didn't send a peace offering. She took a peace offering. You know, think about in our lives, it's real convenient to just send a message to somebody. It requires effort to actually take a message to somebody. And say, hey, let's meet. Let's sit down. Let's talk. Rather than sending a text message, sending a Facebook message, sending sending an Instagram message, you know, whatever they're called. You know, Uh, But sending a message. She took a message. I love Matthew 18. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault. Go, go, go and tell him his fault. Don't send a letter. Don't send a telegram. Don't send a, you know, Chiseled out, hand carved note, you know, whatever. uh, Go and tell him. How much conflict would be avoided if we would simply go to someone and address an issue? There's a great book called Before You Hit Sin. Dr. Emerson Edrich, the same guy who wrote Love and Respect, he wrote the book called Before You Hit Sin. And he gave a simple strategy for four things where if you're going to send a message, ask yourself these four simple questions. And here's the four things I give them to you. Is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? And is it clear? Is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? Is it clear? You know, we could say the exact same thing in our conversations. Is it true? Hey, I want to be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But is it kind? How many of us know that we can say the truth and we can say it in an unkind way? Is it necessary? Is it something that absolutely must be shared? Something that absolutely has to be talked about? Or is it just something that I've got in my crawl that's eaten at me? Is it clear? You know, sometimes we need to be kind and direct, not kind and beat around the bush. Well, you know, I, I just want to talk to you. I mean, it's probably not that big. Just tell me. Just be direct. Just make it clear. The things that I say, the things that I send, do they meet that criteria? If they don't, delete before sending or don't even bother meeting. If I can't meet that criteria, there's no reason for me to have that conversation until it can be. Now, know we live in a society where convenience rules. You know, we've got to make it convenient. I'm busy. Are we so busy that we're willing to lose a relationship? And we say, well, I'm going to sacrifice the relationship for my personal convenience. There seems to be something bad wrong with that ideology. Ideology. We think about Abigail. She didn't just come to David. She submitted to David. Verse 24, she fell down at his feet and said, Upon me, my Lord, upon me let this iniquity be, and let thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak in thine audience. Hey, it's my fault. Hold me responsible, David. Don't take it out against my husband. What amazing display. But apply it, application. How far are we willing to go to save a relationship? How far are we willing to go to save someone's life and integrity? Are we that willing to do to do that? We see number five, the choice that's mentioned, that's made. Verse 32 through 35, David makes a choice. Verse 32, David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which sent thee this day to meet me. Blessed be thy device, blessed be thou, which has kept me this day from coming to shed blood. Good job, Abigail. You just saved everybody's life. And David Tells her directly, you saved everybody. He says in verse 35, I'll accept your gifts. And he says, go up in peace to thine house. See, I have hearkened to thy voice and have accepted thy person. Everything you said, I'll accept it. I'll accept it. I'll get the guys. We'll go back home. And he responds with grace. He doesn't push her aside and say, well, thanks for the stuff. We're going to your house. No, no, no. He accepts that and did what she asked. Who would have thought that this woman's actions would spare her entire household? But that's exactly what happens. And how will we know that our actions won't do the same thing in the lives of those around us? We say, well, you know, pastor, they won't listen. Have, have we tried? Oh, pastor, I tried that years ago and they didn't. Have we tried lately? Have we even given an attempt to try to talk to somebody, to try to make things right? God used this woman who was humble, who was sensitive, to impact someone's life and save lives. That's a pretty big deal. It wasn't the norm. It wasn't even typical that a woman would behave this way in front of a man culturally. Yet God uses her to impact David's life. That's a big deal. God used her, but he used her because she was willing to humble herself. 1 Peter 5, 5. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. This is what this woman got. She got a heavy dose of grace. And we have no idea how one simple act Of humility can impact and affect someone's life. Randy Alcorn said, Humility isn't pretending we're unworthy because it's spiritual, it's recognizing we're unworthy because it's true. Not because we're spiritual. Man, I'm a humble person because I walk with God. We should be humble people because we're not worthy of anything, we're but dust. You know, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, Isaiah said. So the best that you can do stinks. So when we look at our life, are we humble? Number six, we see the consequence. Because David did not respond, it opens the door for God to take care of the situation. This is just me. How many times has our quick action disrupted what God Purpose to do behind the scenes on our behalf. How many times in my life have I rushed to judgment, scheduled a fast meeting, hasty, not following the four? Is it kind? Is it clear? Is you know, uh, is it necessary? Just so I want to prove a point. How many times have I jumped the gun, and I've disrupted what God wanted to do behind the scenes? Just so that I could say, yep, check mark. I did my part, but I did my part with the wrong motive. You know, Abigail returns home. She did one simple thing she was humble, she was willing to take one step, showing humility, not knowing that it would even work. And God used it. And she gets home. She's like, you know, I should probably tell my husband what I just did. So look at verse number 36. And Abigail came to Nabal. And behold, he held a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him. And he was very drunken. He was wasted. Not a good time to talk. Wherefore, she told him nothing, less or more, until the morning light. But look at this, verse 37. It came to pass in the morning when the wine was gone out of Nabal and his wife told him these things that his heart died within him and he became as a stone. He went into shock. You did that? You did what? And he literally goes into shock. The very next verse tells us that 10 days later he dies. Dies in a shocked state, in a stoic state. Doesn't talk, doesn't respond. He dies. God takes his life. You know, isn't that the epitome of what Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, when he said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If we just let God take care of it and we let God do what he does, but along the way we're humble, God works it out. David could have rode into Nabal's front yard and killed everybody and we would not have had the end of the story like we do because not only would God would David have killed everybody he would have killed a future somebody for him personally you know this is convicting for me because I think of times in my life where I have just done my own thing lone rangered it I don't need anybody's help. I don't need to pray about it. You know, some things in life you just don't have to pray about. You know, you just do. And I've disrupted God's plan. I've disrupted or I've jumped the gun because I knew what was best, but in the end, I should have just waited for God to work it out. And that's convicting for all of us, by the way, because we've all done that. But in our life, God wants to Show us who he is, but will we wait long enough to see it? The last thing is the chance in verse 42. It says in verse 41 that after Nabal dies, I can't imagine Abigail being too sad. She lost an evil man as a husband. Oh, shucks, you know? But look at verse 42. And Abigail hasted. Remember the last time she hasted, she was going to save her husband's life. This time she hastes because his life is over. I am getting away from this house. But where does she go? Now this is the awesome part. Because of how she acted. And how... David acted because of how she acted. When God worked it all out, she had somewhere to go. You get that? Because she acted the right way. And David acted the right way. When something tragic happened in her life, She knew exactly where to turn. I don't know if anybody else is getting this, but it's all over me right now. If we will act the right way, it will cause others to see, hey, they responded in the right spirit, so I am too. And when God ultimately works out whatever the issue is, Now I have an ally, not an enemy. Get it? That's what that's what I'm seeing. Because in verse 42, and Abigail hasted and arose and rode upon an ass with five damsels of hers that went after her, and she went after the messengers of David and became his wife. You don't see any children. In this story. She was a widow without kids. That was not a very favorable position to be in in this day. She needed a man to take care of her. What better man to take care of her than someone who had shown her grace? She knew exactly who she wanted. This reminds me of Ruth. If I want a man, I want that one. And that's exactly what Abigail did. But here's the cool part. She didn't just look at David and say, I need him. He looked at her and said, I need her. You ever thought about The day that you realized you needed Jesus. And it dawned on you. I don't just need him. He actually wants me. This is not a one-sided relationship. It goes both ways. She didn't just say, David, will you take me? He said, I would love to have you. Some of y'all are going to wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning. You're going to run around the room. Let me show you why David needed her. Look at verse 44. But Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife. You remember her? Remember Michael McCall? Remember, you kill the giant, you get the king's daughter. That was the wife. David leaves, goes on the run. Michael, remember, defends David's honor. Protects him, hides him, gets him out. Lies to her father to save his life. How does Saul repay that? He gave Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Faulty. What a name. To Falti, the son of Laish. He gave David's wife away. David doesn't have a wife. So how does God provide him a wife? Because one lady said, I'll humble myself. And I'll do something that my husband won't. And David said, I recognize humility and I'm going to respond with grace. And then Nabal dies and Abigail says, I need a husband. And the only person I can think of that can provide for me is the one who has shown me grace. Somebody better get this. So I'm going to go to the one who showed me grace. And I'm going to say, Will you take me? And he says, Not only will I take you, I want you. Just like Jesus does for us. So the next time you think, "Ah, He doesn't want me, I'm not good enough. When we humble ourselves, not only do we get to see grace bestowed to us but we get him that's the best part and David may have said well you know I missed out Michael's gone and God knew all along that he was going to give David what he needed when he needed it and he was going to give Abigail what he needed or what she needed when she needed it. That is a great picture of grace. And it all started with humility. There it is. Are we that humble? Father, thank you so much for this story of David and Nabal and Abigail. and Lord, how it just unlocks pictures in the New Testament of who you are. Lord, the grace that you have shown to us, undeserved favor. Lord, we had a Savior already provided for us, and we didn't even realize it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, thank you so much for who you are and the grace that you've shown to us. When we come to you in humility, We come to you with repentant hearts. We come to you seeking forgiveness. Lord, you not only say, I'll take you, but you say, I want you. Lord, please help us to see ourselves in this story and help us to see that so many things are unlocked if we'll just be humble. We love you. Thank you so much for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to go to our prayer time.